All right, we're all set to get started. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving break, and thanks for coming back for more of the study. I don't have any special announcements other than to uh, hand it off to Robert for this week's continued study of Acts. Okay. As usual, let's get started by listening to the scripture. Today, it will be all of chapter three, but it is it's rather short. So here we go. Let me know if, if you guys can't hear it. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time for prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried up, who was placed at the temple gate called the Beautiful Gate every day so he could beg for money from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple courts, he asked them for money. Peter looked at him directly, as did John, and said, Look at us. So the lame man paid attention to them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, stand up and walk. Then Peter took hold of him by the right hand and raised him up, and at once the man's feet and ankles were made strong. He jumped up, stood, and began walking around, and he entered the temple courts with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the man who used to sit and ask for donations at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with astonishment and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man was hanging on to Peter and John, all the people, completely astounded, ran together to them in the covered walkway called Solomon's Portico. When Peter saw this, he declared to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as if we had made this man walk by our own power or piety? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate after he had decided to release him. But you rejected the Holy and Righteous One, and asked that a man who was a murderer be released to you. You killed the originator of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this fact, we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in Jesus' name, his very name has made this man, whom you see and know, strong. The faith that is through Jesus has given him this complete health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know you acted in ignorance, as your rulers did too. But the things that God foretold long ago through all the prophets that Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and so that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus. This one heaven must receive until the time all things are restored which God declared from times long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must obey him in everything he tells you. Every person who does not obey that prophet will be destroyed and thus removed from the people. And all the prophets from Samuel and those who followed him have spoken about and announced these days. You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, And in your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you, to bless you by turning each one of you from your iniquities. Acts 3, New English Translation Okay, there we go. Now, kind of a... Uh, disclosure here at the beginning. I have been very sick this week, apparently with the same flesh-eating plague as Matt. So um, my blog is a little unfinished and there's some things that perhaps I would have liked to discuss that I, I just didn't have time. Um, well, when I said I didn't have time, I simply did not have the health <laughs> to do it. But we still have plenty to discuss today. Just uh, forgive me if maybe this week I'm a little less prepared than than generally okay but with that out of the way let's talk about the miracle first and then we will talk about the 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 preaching right the message that we get from from peter so um when it comes to the setting you know we read in acts 2 that they were praying regularly at the temple so then chapter 3 opens with what we would expect peter and john are going to the temple to pray now i think that we can safely assume that they're going to a corporate event, to a corporate prayer meeting. They're not just going there for just kind of some alone time for them to pray on their own. And you might think, well, 
Why do I say that? Well, first of all, because in Acts 2, they are acting in these corporate ways, but also because there were standard prayer times, or at least that is most likely the case, I'll explain in a moment, and they were going at exactly one of those times. So the synagogues at some point around this time, like around the, the time of Jesus, they established a tradition of uh, praying three times a day, and we see this reflected in Acts. It, it never comes out and says it, but we see three hours of prayer at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. And we see that in different places, chapters 2, 10, and 3. Um, we also know that Christians continued this tradition of praying at those three times later into their own tradition. And most people think that that tradition of praying at those three times was already in place by this time in, you know, what we're reading in Acts 3. So, um, like I said, in all likelihood, they're going to the temple to pray for one of these corporate events that probably involved singing hymns, um, one person leading the group in prayer. It may even have involved everyone praying at the same time, just different things. Now, also to just set the stage, we might ask ourselves, how long does the action in, in Acts 3 take? Well, we know that they were going to pray at about 3 p.m. And at the beginning of chapter 4, we read that they're arrested at dusk. So all of chapter 3 takes about three hours. The miracle and the preaching, um, that, you know, to, to kind of give you some sense of what is going on here. Now, we encounter a lame man. Uh, and I don't even know if that's the politically correct way of referring to somebody uh, nowadays, but who knows? Um, but we find a lame man who is at uh, one of the gates of the temple. We we learn that he is left daily at, quote, the beautiful gate. We're actually not exactly sure which gate is the beautiful gate. There's two options, the Nicanor gate or the, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Shushan gate or Shushan gate. At any rate, um, it is this latter one that church tradition would say is the beautiful gate, but that tradition only dates back to the fifth century. So it might, um, and in fact, there's there's reasons to believe that that tradition is actually incorrect. The beautiful gate may be the Nicanor gate. Now, uh, you know, that's just an aside. It doesn't really change what's going on in the text. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. But what what is actually relevant is that this man is at a gate. Why is that important? Uh, for really kind of two reasons. Number one, it's quite likely that at the time, because of his defect, he was not allowed to go any further into the temple. Because remember that the temple had different courts. So like, think of concentric rings. They were not in the shape of circles, but it's the same idea. The, this man, because of his defect, was confined to one of the outer rings, could not get closer to the temple. But also a gate would be a perfect place to ask for money because people at church, the temple, but you, you get what I mean, people at church may be a little more inclined to giving. And also there would be a lot of people who are walking by there. So, um, you know, I guess if you have to beg, this would be the place to do it. We should also be aware that begging was considered highly shameful. Um, although, on the other hand, giving alms, so giving to the poor, was considered praiseworthy. Um, and the poor at the time really weren't in a very dismal condition. Uh, they they were generally not housed. They were ravaged by sickness. Okay, so these were people in, in dire need. Again, just to kind of set the stage. So then we get to the action the lame man, he's the one who begins the exchange with the apostles. He requests money. Now, truly what he requests is alms, okay? And alms, it, it, that really is the word in the in the Greek. The only reason that our translation does not use that word is because it's so uncommon to us, um, you know, modern readers. But the, the distinction between that and just asking for money is outright a request for this money given to the poor as an act of charity, right? Which is, is slightly different from just saying, hey, give me money. It's more like saying, hey, give me charity. But that that's what he 
Um, that's what he does, which, like I said, in that Jewish tradition, helping somebody in that regard, giving alms would have considered quite, quite honorable. Well, now, um, and, and I'm not going to linger on this too much, but remember that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we have all of these references to essentially engaging in this kind of behavior. In the Old Testament, actually, we find specific passages about helping people with disabilities. And I, I quote some of them in the blog. Uh, I'll give you one just so you kind of get a sense of it. Uh, you must not curse a deaf person or put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Right. So essentially, if you are unkind or unfair to somebody with disabilities, it is the Lord who will take justice. Now, something that is even even kind of more important when it comes to this scene is that when the Old Testament prophesied the coming of the Messiah and of the end times and of restoration and all of that, one of the clear signs of that was going to be the healing of the blind, the deaf, and the lame. So here's a, a passage from Isaiah, for example. Tell those who panic, be strong, do not fear. Look, your God comes to avenge with divine retribution. He comes to deliver you. Then blind eyes will open, deaf ears will hear, then the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy, for water will burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the arid rift valley. Okay. And in fact, in the Old Testament, we also see the lame used as a type, essentially as a metaphor, for the people of God who have been abused and ignored. Uh, here's a, another passage that I'll read briefly. Look, at that time I will deal with those who mistreated you. I will rescue the lame sheep and gather together the scattered sheep. Okay. So, what is so beautiful is that the healing of the lame man works on two levels. On a literal level, the actual miracle validates that Peter, it validates essentially Peter's credentials, that he is backed by God. But also on the narrative level, it is exactly the kind of sign that was predicted that would initiate the messianic era. So, I mean, it's kind of incredible when you put both levels together. Now, I want to mention one detail that is particularly relevant to us today. Notice that uh, Peter and John immediately clarify upon the request of the lame man, hey, we don't have any money. The, the Technically, the price in the text is silver and gold, but this just means minted coin. Essentially, it just means money. And, and Peter and John say, hey, we don't, we don't have any money. Now, if you remember in chapter 2, all of this kind of new church was sharing all of their possessions. One, you know, if one has a really negative view of religion and perhaps of Christianity in particular, one may think, oh, I bet these were the apostles trying to, you know, get a bunch of that money. They were getting everybody to sell stuff, and they were keeping it all. Well, certainly that's not the image that we get here. The, the apostles don't seem to have been unjustly enriched. Um, sadly, that does happen today. Um, I'm not going to mention any names tonight, but I'm sure you can think of some. Um, okay, so then uh, when we get to the miracle, really one of the key elements in the miracle is Jesus' name, right? Immediately, Peter Peter begins the miracle by giving credit to Jesus Christ, right? He says, essentially, in the name of Jesus, I'm doing this, and and makes it very clear. And in fact, he uses uh, sort of a full name for Jesus, right? Jesus the Nazarene. And that that's the place where Jesus was from. And Nazareth was nothing to brag about, right? It's coming from a little like podunk town that nobody cared about. So it, it clearly shows that Peter is referring to a historical person that was born in a historical town and so forth. Um, but it also is a little bit defiant of the expectations at the time because these, these kind of legendary rulers all came from legendary places, from great places. Well, not Jesus. Jesus just came from some nowhere town. Um, now, we might ask ourselves, you know, when, when Peter uses the name of Jesus, 
exactly what does he mean by that? And I don't know if you've ever wondered about that, but the question is actually a little bit trickier than, than it seems at first. Normally, well, there, there's a couple of ways that we could take this. In in prayer, let's say in the Lord's Prayer, right, that it begins, Lord, or, or sorry, the, the, I quoted the passage in Luke where the, the apostles come to, to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus tells them, when you pray, say the following, Father, may your name be honored, okay, and so forth. goes on. Um, it is... <laughs> The NET, the way that it translates the Lord's Prayer is kind of unsettling because it doesn't translate it with the same words we're used to to repeating. So, um, I don't know. It's kind of weird. But at any rate, um, in that case, saying the name of the Lord just means that we are addressing the Lord, right? And now, saying the name of the Lord can also essentially be asking Him to do something. Like if we continue reading the same Lord's Prayer and we say something like, give us each day our daily bread, we have prefaced that by saying, Lord, calling on the Lord's name. Um, we also see um, this kind of use of the Lord's name um, when addressing an audience, like when when the prophets would say, uh, essentially, um, you know, you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of my God, and we will say, and we will see who responds. Again, calling on the Lord's name means the Lord is the one who is going to act. Now, in the Gospel of John particularly, but also in other places in the New Testament, we see the Lord's name being used a little differently. It seems um, that sometimes, when say when we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, what we're doing is acting like a broker. This was common at the time, both in Jewish culture and Gentile culture. And in, in that instance, using somebody's name, it means that you are you're an agent of theirs. You're acting on their authority. So essentially, if I said, on the authority of the king, you are arrested, right? It, it's not really the, the king that is arresting you. I am the one arresting you, but I do it on the authority of the king. That's the power that I quote-unquote wield. So. When Peter says, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're healed, we could understand that like uh, Peter is just effectively declaring what God is doing, or Peter is acting more as the agent, so the miracles being done through Peter, but on the authority of Christ. Now, either way you take it, Christ is central to it. Perhaps this whole discussion that I just gave you is, is just nonsense to you, which is fair. Uh, but I do think it's important to think about, you know, uh, is Peter just kind of declaring what God will do or acting as the agent, as the as the utensil almost, uh, through which God is acting? Um, yeah, but um, that aside, what are some things, some takeaways that that we that we can get from this? Number one, um, again, Jesus is clearly the one acting, either through an agent or not, but Jesus is the one acting. Um, Peter does not use any kind of formula or ritual to do the miracle. And again, this to us is so second nature that we don't think about it, but this is really important at the time. There were magicians at the time who would at least pretend to do these kind of things. And for them, you know, they, they would use magical elements, ingredients and the such and, and incantations. There's none of that. But also, in both uh, pagan and Jewish culture, there, there was an idea that a man who was particularly pious was powerful, had some kind of favor with the gods, and he could use his, his power, was granted by the gods. And in this case, we see none of that. It is not the piety of Peter. It is not some magical incantation. It is none of that. It is Jesus who is acting. Um, so... That um, that definitely is, is one of those kind of key takeaways as they do one of their first miracles. Um, then how does the healing happen? I think we also should pay attention to some of the details there. Peter takes the man's right hand, uh, which to us means nothing, but remember that, that the guy who's being healed is the lowest of the low when it comes to social class. 
So grabbing him by the right hand, it is a, it is definitely an act of kindness and acceptance. And then the, the miracle is so evident that we read that he walks and leaps, and again it says he walks, and again it says that everyone sees him walking. There's no there's no doubt here as to what happened, right? And the miracle is so effective because this guy had been lame since birth, and he had been placed there every day for some time. Obviously not since birth, not since he was a baby, but we can assume for a very, very long time. And so nobody can deny what has just happened. Everybody knows that this guy could not walk. And now here he is leaping and walking and so forth. Um, there's also another detail that is is very likely true, so I want to mention it. The text doesn't make this explicit, but like I said, we know from tradition that it's quite likely that this man could not go further into the temple because of his disability. And now that he is healed, he goes into the temple courts, right? And people see him walking and leaping. And so there's this beautiful image that he could approach God no further. And now that barrier to experience God has been removed by the power and grace of Jesus. So again, the, the, the miracle just works on so many levels. Yeah. But what is the miracle doing? It is highlighting theology at the end of the day, right? It is, it, it, it is calling attention to the message that is about to be preached. Now, and the message happens not at the gate, but at Solomon's portico, which was an outdoor hallway supported by pillars, so a covered area. Um, if you're really interested in arch architecture, I'm going to let you go kind of look that up, what that looks like. But it is one of those pre-Herodian structures. So it's one of those older parts of the temple. And uh, it seems that Christians favor that area for preaching and for gathering. We read about it in Acts 3, in Acts 5, and we also read about it in John 10. So uh, just kind of a recurring place. Well, the message begins with what effectively I just said, who done it? <laughs> Peter immediately corrects a misunderstanding by the crowd. The crowd thinks that Peter, or apparently thinks that Peter is this powerful man who have just done this. He immediately says, nope, the cause of the, the healing is Jesus, not himself. Um, like I said a minute ago, uh, wonder workers were common at the time. They were understood to be sorcerers. And, and actually, we see this anti-magical apologetics in Acts and also in the letters of Paul, where the apostles are making it very clear, we are not magicians, we're not sorcerers, it is God who is, who is acting. And um, um, immediately, let me see there. Um, yeah, no, I'll, just, I'll just move to, to the next point. So we see God here being called by kind of his, one of his most popular titles, which is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, if you've been a Christian all your life or whatever, that, that expression has become nearly meaningless because you just, you've heard it so much. And I'm, I don't mean that as any sort of criticism. I just mean sometimes we don't stop and think about those things that are very familiar to us. But um, we should note that this, you know, this is a, a, a title for God that appears in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus, the most memorable mention must be the burning bush, right? In, in, I'll read some of it because this will, this will recur here in just a minute. Uh, this is from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the, pre, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to the mountain of God, to Horeb. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush. He looked, and the bush was ablaze with fire, but it was not being consumed. So Moses thought, I will turn aside to see this amazing sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. God said, Do not approach any closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He added, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
that Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay, so this is a a, a title that God has even used for Himself. Um, this this kind of title appeared in Jewish prayers and benedictions. It was certainly one of the most familiar titles for God. Now, why why am I going so deep into this? Well, um, Jesus uses this title for God once and only once before. And at least that, that it is written, you know, I'm sure in his life he used it more than once. And it was when Jesus was defending the resurrection. And you, this appears in Luke, but not only in Luke. Um, when essentially he's being put to the test by the Pharisees and they're saying, please, oh, sorry, not the Pharisees, the Sadducees, I misspoke. And they're saying, please, Jesus, the resurrection cannot be true because of this. And they kind of give him a riddle. I won't go into that. You know, one day we study that, we'll we'll get to it. But um, but essentially Jesus responds and says, Hey, notice that God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live before him. And everybody's astounded as you know to about what Jesus said. Um so Jesus uses this title when he is defending the resurrection, and now here Peter uses the title to defend the restoration, right? A time of restoration. Um, so, and I, I think that this is not coincidental. I really think that that it is showing essentially the argument that that is here is that the God who demonstrated His faithfulness to the patriarchs in the Exodus would be faithful to His promise to raise them from the dead. God demonstrated that faithfulness in raising Jesus from the dead, so one can expect God to deliver on his other promises, such as the promise of restoration. Okay, God is the God of the living, and he will follow through with his promises. We see several titles used for Jesus, um, and um, some of these I have discussed at length in our study of John, and I've done to some extent already in Acts, so I don't want to repeat myself. Um, so I'm going to cover some of these very briefly. Um, we see that Jesus is called the servant. And in we actually see that he is exalted, it's in the same context, or glorified, whichever word you would like to use. And when you put those two words together, this is, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to argue that this is not a reference to Isaiah's servant. What I mean by that is there's a servant song in the book of Isaiah. And this, this very much is what, what you know Peter is teaching about Jesus. So let me read this, and then we will cover the other titles. Um, it, it, Isaiah, this is from chapter 52, and it goes slightly into chapter 53. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. Just as many were horrified by the sight of you, he was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred, he no longer looked human. So now he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation. They will witness something unannounced to them, and they will understand something they had not heard about. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil, he had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. To me, that's just amazing. I mean, that's essentially the gospel. When we say, hey, share the gospel, it's pretty much that, right? It's, it's a servant song of Isaiah. Um, and like I said, almost certainly, this title of servant, in, in conjunction with, with being exalted or glorified, is pointing to this. Um, we also uh, see Jesus being called the Holy One which was a title for God in the Old Testament. In fact, in Isaiah, in the context of the, the servant song, that title is used for God the Father many, many times. 
Now, to be fair, if the expression is the Holy One of God, that would not imply that somebody is God. It would imply that they're serving God in a special way. But I think in this context, the phrase is clearly denoting the deity of, of Christ um, because of the other titles that go along with this. At any rate, uh, we see the title, The Righteous One, which is not a common expression for Christ later on in the New Testament, right? We see, I believe, only two references to the Righteous One after Acts, um, and I give one of those examples in the blog. Um, so why do we see this title for Jesus in Acts particularly? Well, um, the Righteous One is used almost exclusively, not almost, exclusively, uh, when preaching to Jerusalem audiences. And it, I think that what it's doing is that it's contrasting the, the essentially the blamelessness of Christ with Barabbas the murderer, the guy who, who went free, right, when Jesus was crucified, and the guilt of those who crucified Jesus, you know, again, as opposed to the righteous one. Essentially, it is making the point that Jesus was blameless. Um, also, righteous servant appears in the servant song of Isaiah. So again, all of this is very much clearly going back to Isaiah. And then we get this unusual title, um, origin, what our translation says, originator of life. Depending on the translation you're looking at, it may say founder of life or even prince of life. And this um, this title, um, it it's it it highlights sorry that um again my my brain is all not all not all here today but um this title is really highlighting one of the main themes in this speech which is this contrast between life and death and we see this between the originator of life and those uh, who who killed Jesus and those who kill and those and not those, but the one who raises back to life being God, right? So there's this whole play between life and death going on in this particular speech. This is very, very reminiscent of um, a, a passage in Deuteronomy where God tells the people, choose life instead of death. And I would like to, again, read that. I know that I'm, I'm reading a lot of, of the Old Testament I promise I'm going to get to maybe a conclusion, something that we can discuss. Just bear with me for another minute and I'll, I'll wrap this up. But here's the passage from Deuteronomy. Look, I have said before you today, life in prosperity on the one hand and death and disaster on the other. What I'm commanding you today is to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to obey his commandments, his statutes and his ordinances. Then you will live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're about to possess. However, if you turn aside and do not obey, but are lured away to worship and serve other gods, I declare to you this very day that you will certainly perish. You will not extend your time in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Today I invoke heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have said life and death, blessing and curse before you. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. I also call on you to love the Lord your God, to obey him and be loyal to him, for he gives you life and enables you to live continually in the land the Lord promised to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Choose life, not death. And again, we see this, this, this play in this particular sermon of Peter. Um, this, the, the word for originator, like I said, or prince or founder of life, there's some debate as to what is the best translation, what really captures its meaning. And it really, it really denotes a leader in somebody in 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 something like the leader of a clan, for example. That really would be the primary uh, connotation that it would have for this audience. Um, so perhaps the best translation is the word pioneer. Jesus is the pioneer of life, the firstborn of all creation, right? The first one to go through this process and in so forth he's breaking trail for the rest of us to follow him the reason that um, scholars rather not use pioneer is because apparently pioneer is in that list of icky words that we no longer use because you know it's too individualistic and all the other stuff 
I, no joke. I read about this. Um, okay. Now, I want to get to the kind of the conclusion of the speech. Now, if, you, if you've if you noticed the speech in, in Acts 2 and Acts 3, they're very similar, but they're not the same. There are some differences between them. Now, by differences, I do not mean inconsistencies. I want to be super clear. I don't mean that they're in conflict with one another. It's just that they provide different information. They kind of build upon one another. Um, the, the setup for the speech is similar, right? In Acts 2, Peter tells them, hey, you killed Jesus, effectively the divine king that, that God sent to you, um, a fact to which all of you guys are witnesses. Um, this speech starts almost the same way. Hey, you killed Jesus. But he does say a fact to which we, the apostles, are witnesses. But then he quickly adds, but you're witnesses to this miracle that I just did. So effectively, you know that we are telling the truth. So that, you know, the, the setup is very similar. Okay. You know, everybody's aware of what has happened to Jesus. Now, um, how do we respond to this information? And in both cases, Peter calls them to repentance. Uh, there's a tiny distinction in tone in the two messages. In in chapter 2, Peter is really emphasizing the culpability of the crowd. In chapter 3, Peter minimizes it by saying, well, you were not aware of what you were doing. There's not really a theological difference. He's kind of going for a different angle. But I would say the real difference in the speeches where we really kind of learn something new is what happens after repentance. In chapter 2, it says, and I quote, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter adds a couple of verses down, save yourselves from this perverse generation, which particularly in the context of Acts 2, it means um, avoid judgment. Now, what do we read in chapter 3? And again, I quote, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and so that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus. This one heaven must receive until the time all things are restored, which God declared from times long ago through his holy prophets. Okay. And and I actually kind of omitted the part, I did not mean to do this, where he says, where Peter also talks about forgiveness of sins. So repentance is always linked to forgiveness of sins. But here, Peter essentially is adding this repentance will also lead to restoration, and eventually it will lead to the return of Jesus, right? Um, and, and the return of Jesus, right, is kind of being delayed, so to speak. Uh, it says this one heaven must receive until the time of things are restored. So something must happen until Jesus returns. And um This idea of restoration, again, it's all throughout the Old Testament. Um, You you could read in Ezekiel chapter 36, only for the sake of time. I'm not going to read it to you, but uh, essentially I'm I'm trying to kind of pull some of the main things that that we can start to to kind of make a list of, so to speak. Um, The the good news is, is, hey, repent and you will have the Holy Spirit. You will have forgiveness. You will have eternal life. But also, uh, somehow, some kind of restoration will occur. And eventually, um, once all of this has happened, Jesus will return. So, what what is maybe a summary that we can take away in, in some conclusions? And the conclusions are going to get super, super controversial. I actually worded them in a way that I hope they're not. Um, I'll explain that in just... A moment, but um, I'm about to stir up some some trouble over here. Um, okay, but I think here's kind of the main conclusion that I think we need to get from from chapter three. What does this tell us about the current age, meaning what we're living right now? Um, and it is the opportunity to turn to God, right? The opportunity to turn to God is now. The good news is going out to all the nations. You can see that in verse twenty five. Um, and that the Lord, you know, Jesus, he is the firstborn from the dead, the first one to be raised from the dead. He is this pioneer of life. 
And anybody who trusts a pioneer of life shall reach the same destination. And one day, when all the people of God have turned to him, Jesus will return to judge, to heal, to restore, and to reign a world that will be filled with love, peace, and joy. And I know that sounds very churchy, but it's because it's kind of the message of the church. <laughs> um, so the time to turn to God is now. Uh, that very much, I think, is the conclusion of that. Now, I wanted to maybe give you a couple of other thoughts and, and um, we'll see how this goes over. But we, um, we, we might ponder a couple of things here. What Peter says, hey, you know, it, it is an, until the time that all things are restored that Jesus will come. Now, notice this language is very similar or it seems to track with Psalm 110, which Peter relies heavily upon in chapter 2, um, where it says, Here's the Lord's proclamation to my Lord. Sit down on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, and, and then it goes on. So it, it, it can make it sound like, oh, okay, so we're expecting the world to get better and better and better and be like fully restored. And then Jesus will come back, right? The, so this could lead us to have this very optimistic view of history. And some Christians certainly look at it that way. Um, they are kind of a minority, not kind of, they are a, a small minority, but but certainly that is a view that many Christians take. Um, many Christians take um, a view that no history will have this church advancing and people coming to Christ, but we're not really kind of guaranteed that the world will become better or worse. And some people have a very negative view. They think, Christians, I mean, think that really in history things will get worse and worse and worse and then Jesus will return. The arguments for those views come from all over the Bible. Certainly I'm not going to cover them in the next three minutes. Um, but I don't know, as, you're, as we're reading through Acts, the only reason I'm pointing this, this out is so maybe you can think about that and think, okay, what, what is kind of the expectation here? How will history go? And the other question that I thought we might ask is, you know, so far when we're reading in Acts, everything is still aimed at the Jews, particularly the church is still in Israel. Now, as we if we go through Acts, then the mission will expand to Gentiles. Um, but say when when Peter says here to the audience, um, you know, repent, and so that Jesus may come back. Do we mean, or does he mean, that it is particularly the, the Jews who must repent uh, for Jesus to return? And again, I, I just want to put this bug in your ear, so to speak. Um, there are Christians, uh, particularly in the United States today, uh, who, who really believe that, that, that the Jews kind of play this, um, this special role. And a lot of times, though not always, that goes along with a nation of Israel, um, which is why so many Christians in the U.S. are, are committed to Israel. Um, and But there's many Christians who do not take that view, who would see these comments as applying to just kind of people in general. Um, and <laughs> the reason I said this was going to be controversial, although I'm not even taking positions on this because I try to be a neutral on these things, people feel very, very strongly about this. Either, whatever view they have, I'm sure they hold it so dearly. So with that being said, um, Matt, I will turn it over to you for questions or comments. And I'm sorry I went a little long today. Sure. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, uh, Robert. As usual, everybody, if you'd like to participate in the discussion, just write the word question in the chat and I will bring it in in the order in which your request to speak appears. As far as my own uh, point of, uh, of uh, question here or clarification, you had mentioned that the way that Peter phrases the way he's acting on behalf of Jesus has some kind of meaningful distinction. I don't feel like I'm clear on that distinction at all though, because if so, if I understand the phrasing would differentiate between either Jesus acting to perform the miracle using Peter as an agent or doing it directly. And Peter just kind of declaring it like, look at what Jesus d just did. I am an observer but either way, Jesus is the key ingredient that performs the act. So what, 
what is the distinction that matters there is what I'm unclear about. Uh, okay. So, you know, I know this is such a nuanced distinction. Perhaps I, I wasted y'all's time by even going into this, but uh, you kind of know how my brain works. <laughs> I, I, I think it matters to me. I, on, on, on one hand, like if Peter is just declaring what, what Jesus has done, uh, Peter really did not have any authority to, to do the miracle or not do the miracle. He just knows that, that Jesus is going to do this and he announces it. But in the agency example, essentially Peter has the power. Uh, Christ has delegated the power to Peter. Now it is still being done through Christ, through his power. But Peter could have decided to heal that man or not heal him and heal the different guy. You know, mm. it's actually it's like so in that case, it's like Christ is the hammer, but he kind of swings the hammer, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I like, mean, that, who, that would be spelling? pretty meaningful. I see. I see the point that you're making there. I guess the yeah, question, like the, the follow up question that I would have is just how do you become the hammer wielder then? But I, you have to be an, an apostle or. Ah, so you see, that's why this matters, because um there, there's kind of two schools of thought on this. Uh, some would say that the, the apostles had this special agency, essentially. And that's why we see them performing miracles in the New Testament. But that this office did not continue beyond them. So nobody else received the same kind of authority. Hmm. Um, there are uh, Christians today who who believe that this office continued uh, to, to greater or lesser extents. Maybe their authority just continued in the sense that they would get authoritative uh, teachings, or perhaps that they could do miracles. Um, and and with some of those views, I would strongly disagree with. But there you go. Yeah, some people continue this, yeah. some people don't. Yeah. Well, yeah, the distinction that you're making is is one in which the apostle has no power versus one in which the apostle has quite a lot of power, actually, and. So that, that, that is more meaningful than I originally understood. So thanks for that clarification. Um, Chris is requesting to speak. Go ahead, Chris, if you're ready. Yeah, thank you guys again for the opportunity and thank you for the lesson, Robert. Um, just, just uh, I, I have a very simple, quick question, but before I do, I, I, just in response to something, you know, Matt's question, I think we're going to cover that uh, in, in where when somebody tries to do it for the wrong reasons. Right. So as far as the, power, yeah, guess, that, that was kind of where my mind was going is surely there's got to be a veto power on uh, the improper wielding of the power. So maybe you're right. And I'm, there's a piece of the story that I don't know about that we're going to get to. To be continued. Yeah. Absolutely. So my, so my question is uh, very simple. Uh, Robert, you, you mentioned, you read a little bit of Isaiah 52 and 53 and thank you for that. So the, uh, Question is, how far back does that go? When was Isaiah written, and is that even computed? Oh my goodness, I cannot remember the year. But I mean, we're talking uh, centuries of difference. But I, off the top of my head, I cannot tell you beyond that. That is centuries. Uh, that's, and I'm sorry, there. <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody else here who will be able to tell you better. Or maybe you know. I don't know. No, I don't. I don't know exactly, but my, I guess. I guess fundamentally, the question is: that's even in the like. If you ask a, a Jewish person today, or someone that's trying to uh, practice Judaism, which I don't think is possible. But anyway, the the uh, they I, correct me if I'm wrong, but but even they would not dispute the age and the authenticity of Isaiah. No, correct. You're correct. In fact. This, like, essentially, if you're going to share the gospel uh, with a Jew who, who actually cares about his own scriptures, not all, actually, most Jewish people are not religious. But um, this is one of the places you might point them to because it seems to point to Christ so well, so accurately, um, that it's, it's hard for them to deny it. Not that they don't, not that they don't, but some. Jews will even refer to to the servant song as one of the forbidden passages. It's obviously not formally forbidden, but it 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 presents a problem for them. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Robert. Nathaniel's up next. Go ahead, Nathaniel. 
Yeah, uh, Robert, Matt, appreciate it for this uh, Bible study. I'm looking forward at chapter four. I don't want to kind of uh, get too far into that, but kind of looking forward into that is is. Do you think that perhaps um, this use of the history, this use of the prophets and the way he's using them, um, was was meant to kind of grip them or offend them in a way? Uh, it was meant to kind of, uh, you know, I guess, utilize that as being like these. This is what this is what your prophets were talking about. And tying Jesus into the point that saying Jesus in the same line of these same prophets um, who came and, and you decided not to listen to him. So that's what that's what, uh, that's what I want to know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't know if I would say he means to like kind of offend him, but certainly he I mean, he is showing them, look, your own scriptures, what you believe, all point to Jesus and they do so remarkably well. Um, and he, the way that Peter argues is exactly how one, like how a Jewish teacher would have argued using these midrashic arguments. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, certainly Peter is, um, this, this is not the best way of putting it, but kind of weaponizing their own scriptures to get them to believe, but not doing so in, in, in any falsity because, because I mean, if if you believe Peter, and of course I do, uh, these scriptures really are about Jesus. So he's explaining those to them, um, and people certainly convert. They seem to be convinced by it. All right, thanks, Nathaniel. Um, next up, Denby. Go ahead, Denby. Uh, yeah, I'll just um, comment about the the authority thing. I, um, the I think the place where we we get the the best understanding of uh, what the distinction is and why it matters is uh, from Exodus, where um, there's a point where Moses says something and he uh, he means the right thing, but it's he says it in a way that it could be construed by the people who hear it in the wrong way, and because of that, Moses. Is not buried in the sight of his people, and he doesn't enter the promised land. You know, like Moses said, you know, uh, at a certain point they're whining again. He, they are asking for water, and Moses says, "We'll get water." And of course, he means God. But you know, the the people could have thought he meant he and Aaron, he and his brother Aaron, and so. Um, that's why it's so important for Peter, the other apostles, to say, it's not me. It's through the power of God. Just as Jesus said, I can do nothing but through the will of the Father. You know, so it's it's sort of like um, uh, the miracle is not a sign of how powerful Peter is. Like that was the that was the issue with 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 Moses. It wasn't he uh, wasn't saying anything blasphemous, but it could be misunderstood misunderstood by the people hearing him, and they may have uh, ended up considering him a god if he had been able to go into the promised land. Because it's it's just the the distinction was not clear in their understanding from hearing what he said. Okay, do you have thoughts on that, Robert? Um, no, I mean, I think that's a that's a good comparison. Uh, maybe one of these days we'll discuss that. But essentially, uh, Moses, he seems to assume too much of the credit. It, it's it's kind of a complicated passage, but no, roughly, uh, I think that that's fair. That's a fair comparison, and I think we can we can leave it at that. Okay, thanks, Denby. Uh, I think that's all our requests to speak. So, Robert, we got about five minutes. We could wait to see if anyone wants to chime in with more. Or I have another thing I'd like to ask you about. Or if there's anything in the, the this week's text that you feel like you didn't cover uh, sufficiently. No, I, I would just say I really didn't get to explain the last few verses where the, where Moses is being quoted. But 
whatever. Um, let's get to your question, Matt, and then maybe we'll, well discuss that. Uh, you mentioned controversy in some of your summary and conclusions, and in the in the end, sort of just set them aside a little bit. Didn't really get deep into them. So I, I don't know that this is quite like the um, the charity controversy from two weeks ago, <laughs> but I don't know that I fully understand the controversy here. So if you want to explain uh, a little bit more about what is controversial in these points of summary and conclusion, I'd like to hear about that. Sure. Okay. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm about to get booted off the internet. Um, but um, eschatology, right? I keep throwing this word out, but it's it's our philosophy of the end times, our beliefs about the end times. Um, and Christians disagree strongly on how the end times are going to go. And, and there's really two, two disagreements that I'm highlighting here. I do it very, very broadly so that nobody gets upset at me. And by the way, it's not that I'm afraid of upsetting people. It's just that I'm trying to be whatever, non-divisive. But, fair. Yeah, I mean, we're aiming for like fair fair, and uh, not necessarily trying to convince people of a particular side. Giving, giving people all sides to decide for themselves. Yeah, That's right. That's right. So let me tell you then what is the view that is mo most popular in the U.S. today? And then I think that's a great point to start. Um, but most Christians in, in the U.S. today are what they're called dispensationalist premillennialist. I know, or dispensational premillennialist. You know, big words. But um, essentially, have you... Are you familiar with the books like uh, Left Behind? No. Well, essentially, the, the timeline, as they see it, is that the world will get worse and worse and worse, and Christians will be persecuted. And, and like, I think essentially everything is going to crap, to put it very uh, succinctly. And then there's this rapture where Christians disappear, they're taken up to heaven. There's a seven year period of tribulation. Then Jesus comes back. Then there's a thousand year reign on earth. And then after, like literally a thousand years. And then uh, after the thousand years is, then is the final judgment. Okay. And uh, generally in that timeline during the thousand years, Israel is restored as a nation. And all of the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled during those thousand years. Um, okay. Now, if, if this sounds super weird to you, I mean, if this is such like an in-house discussion that that is almost embarrassing to to introduce it to somebody who's just now looking at the Bible. But um, the people really, really, really like that timeline, and there's books about it, and there's movies about it, and all that stuff. People are really heavily vested, and I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm just I'm just pointing out a fact. Well. Um, the the other views of the end times um, are different in two ways. Um, number one, in here's kind of the the bigger question is: Does Israel really hold this special position, or are the promises made to Israel fulfilled with the church? Because the church is one with Israel; they're they're the same tree, right? So essentially, is there kind of one people of God? That continues first, it is the Jewish people, and then it is the church, which includes, of course, Jewish believers. Or are there two distinct groups? Um, and if, if you believe dispensational premillennialism, then um, you are kind of committed to defending the nation of Israel um, for religious reasons, because there's verses about it and so forth. And, and this is why many people in the U.S. today, b believers, um, they will support Israel no matter what because they have a, a religious commitment there. And again, if that sounds critical, I'm just trying to describe. I'm not, I'm not criticizing or supporting. I'm just describing. Um, but if you if you take the other view, which is to say that in in Acts and as, as you read on, um, the the Israel sort of turns into the church, so to speak. Um, then, then you're not committed to a 
to the nation of Israel in any way. You're committed to the church. You 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 are committed to the prosperity but of the church. When you say that nation of Israel, you mean that in the the modern political sense, the state of Israel that exists today, or what? That is another wrinkle into this because oh. some people would see the the modern nation of Israel as exactly yes, like the the true nation of Israel that must be supported. Some people might say. That's not the true nation of Israel, but there will be a true nation of Israel that will come later. But honestly, the first view that I uttered, that the nation of Israel today is like the nation of Israel, is the more prevalent view. Okay. okay. Um, now, and here's where people are going to just come at me. Uh, but again, I'm just describing. You guys can can then say whatever you want. Um, this, this dispensational premillennialism particularly the dispensational part uh, that that gives Israel this special status. It's um, it's only been popular essentially in the last hundred years of church history, and particularly in North America. Um, throughout history, that has not been the view held by Christians. Um, and... And, and I say that I'm not trying to engage in the genetic fallacy, right? There's to say where have you comes from, either credits it or discredits it. But but what I'm saying is we live in kind of this weird time right now where sometimes if you if somebody doesn't hold to dispensational premillennialism, they will be accused of being like heretics. But the people who don't hold that view actually hold the view that was held for like, you know, 1900 years. Okay. Um so it's a very dicey topic. People get very, very upset about this. Uh, yeah, and it's I, probably, you're, you're probably right that it's a little bit, it, it's a, too advanced for my exposure so far. It's like, I feel like I uh, am I'm meeting my girlfriend's parents for the first time and I'm hearing the entire family history all the way back to the Mayflower. You know, it's like, yeah. we'll get there, but, uh, but I, need, a, I need to ease into it a little bit. Because yeah. I, I feel like I understand about half of what you're saying. Well, in one of these days, like we, oh, and look, like somebody pointed out that the premillennial view, uh, you know, is this old or that old. And, 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 but sometimes people don't distinguish between premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism, which they're different. So maybe one of these days we can just do a deep dive into that, into eschatology, because yeah. the, the only reason I mentioned it, like I said, it's so that you guys can be the judges of this as we read through Acts. You can come to your own conclusions. I'm not going to try to push anyone in any given direction. Um, and people keep bringing this up essentially throughout our study, like there's a certain timeline, which is totally fair. They can do that. But I wanted other people to know there's options. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. And in the meantime, we did have one more request to speak. So I know we're a little bit past the hour, but I figure I will honor that since... Uh... He requested to speak before the top of the hour. Uh, VV, go ahead. Well, I'll try and keep it short. Um, time valuable. Um, when you when you brought this uh, topic up, um, uh, the rapture, second coming, um, I, I come from the Seventh Day Adventist denomination, and um, there's been a lot of focus in the church in regards to um, reading of prophecy and trying to determine in time when exactly did certain prophecies come to fruition or what is it predicting exactly and uh, as a christian within uh, growing up in that church uh, it was something that I, I took issue with because it seemed like we were so preoccupied with trying to predict exactly when god is coming and i feel like that kind of flew in the face of him coming as like a thief in the night we don't necessarily know when god's going to come and his timeline doesn't necessarily align with human, uh, uh, our limited human perception of time as well. And I think it overshadowed um, really the, uh, the purpose behind the gospel. And it's really, we're supposed to be oriented towards building and forming a relationship with God. And then that, that pursuing that then overshadows salvation, um, eternal life and all that sort of stuff, because that's all just a byproduct. That's a gift that comes with becoming uh, a child of God. And so, I don't know. I, I, I think 
I don't understand why people get in their feelings about this, but I, I identify with this quite a bit. It's been my whole life, it's the story of my whole life. And uh, people do get touchy about it. And um, I think it's because uh, this is probably where I might irritate some folks. I think it's because they're more absor- self-absorbed in their own salvation than really caring about their relationship with God, with Christ. And that, that's, that's a hurtful thing to say, but uh, I think we're um, narcissistic uh, human beings. We're fallen, and that's, what, that's why we really need Christ. Thank you for that comment. Um, I, yeah, I have actually avoided this topic, kind of like the plague, because people just tend to, to, to really lose their minds over this. Now, I'm not, if somebody has strong opinions about this, like I always say, you're welcome to voice them. I, I'm by no means saying that people should not talk about this or whatever. But just like you said, BB, I want to focus on on the gospel, on what the text says, instead of just uh, picking fights for no reason. But I thought because of what Acts 3 says, it was worth at least mentioning. And so, yeah, but thank you for that comment. All right. Uh, any other thoughts from me, Robert, before we call it a night? Uh, no, again, sorry that maybe today I was a little less prepared than usual, but um, next week I hope to be healthy and we will have a good session. Wouldn't have noticed if you didn't say anything, as always, so that's a good way to be. Uh, thanks for your uh, your effort despite the sickness tonight, Robert, and of course thanks to everybody for joining and participating this evening. As a reminder, if you missed any part of the study or you just want to listen back or catch up on a study in the past that you may have missed, you can head on over to the Bible study page of my website, linked on the homepage. And uh, you can listen back to this study or any other study in the history of all the studies. You can get in touch with Robert uh, or get in touch with me through that page as well. In the meantime, uh, have a great night and we hope to catch you back here Friday at 9 Eastern as usual.